Show with David J. Maloney. This week, David talks with Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter John Parr. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. Our featured guest tonight is a musician, singer, songwriter, uh, known for his hit song, Naughty Naughty, in 1984. His 1985 Grammy-nominated number one hit single, Man in Motion, or as most people know it, St. Elmo's Fire, uh, and his many other motion picture themes, including songs for Three Men and a Baby, The Running Man. Uh, Here to talk about his life, music, why he's still not slowing down, is singer-songwriter John Parr. John, welcome to the show. Hey, David, how you doing? We are doing just fine. Uh, So, John, most people uh, know you from your hit songs and music videos when MTV used to do videos. Um, But I've learned you've been doing music since you were around 12. Um, Was there a lot of music in your home growing up? Well, my mum and dad weren't musical, but um, before that, actually, David, I I was kind of performing with the guitar probably in school, about eight or nine years old. Um, but yeah, I was just captured by the 60s and all that fantastic music. So how young were you when your first band, The Silence, started touring Europe? How did you guys kind of first find success at that age? Um, the Silence, I was 12 years old and we just played uh, like the local uh, area in, in northern England. My dad was the manager and he used to drive the truck and he was a hard taskmaster. But we started going into Europe uh, probably in, in my later teens. Uh, and then the kind of band shifted as they always do and members come and go. But um, I did 150,000 miles uh, with my dad behind the wheel before I was 15 in England. So talk to me about your group Ponder's End. I just started learning about the working man's clubs while researching for this interview, and the whole thing kind of fascinates me. I mean, I imagine our audience here in the States won't know much about it, so I I was kind of curious about it. Yeah, I mean, I I can't think of an equivalent, but basically um, these were clubs that uh, if guys worked in a factory or in a mine, there would be a social club for the the guy or or the woman and their family. And there would be shows on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, bingo. I don't know if you're familiar with bingo. It's where you, you know, or housey, housey. That was a big deal. So the act would come on. Then there would be the bingo. Then there would be the act. But um, it was like like Vegas very badly. Very, very bad Vegas. And, uh, you know, I mean... Sometimes you played on a Sunday afternoon and uh, that would be a stripper on us on lunchtime and we were kids. So there was stripper and then we'd play. But the guys were really just there for the beer and the strippers. you know. So it was if you could dodge dodge the bottles and, and still be standing, you were on the road to fame. So I had no idea that you did. You, you wrote songs for Meatloaf, too. No, that was the beginning of it. Yeah, I uh, I played live for so long. And the truck eventually blew up for the last time. And uh, I was married then. My wife said, um, you know, why don't you just write songs? I'll pay the bills. Um, And that's what we did for three or four years. And I got a little publishing deal. And um, the publishers started sending the songs out. And the first kind of hook was Meatloaf. And uh, I recorded two or three things for him before I met him. 
and I could mimic him pretty good. So I recorded them as he would sing. And then I met up with him, gave him, it was a cassette in those days, and he loved it. And within a month, I was living in Connecticut with him and his family, making the new record. Did you, uh, did you have a recording thing at, at Bearsville Studios? No, but I'm not very famous as, uh, that's Todd Rundgren, am I right? Yeah, and, and the reason why is because I grew up in Woodstock, and, and Woodstock and Bearsville are like, you know, Family. Yeah. I literally, I grew up in an area called the Bearsville Flats, which is right, it's, it's where Woodstock and Bearsville kind of merge. Yeah, I mean, it's iconic for me coming from, I'm in, you know, sitting here in the north of England, but I mean, those names, I mean, I've not heard them for a while, Bearsville, but I mean, it was, uh, it was just iconic and the magic that was created there. Um, so um, what was the process like of getting your first solo recording deal? I mean, how did, how did that happen? We just spoke with J.J. French, a Twisted Sister, and he recounted just how hard it was um, for them as a band to finally get there. What was that journey like for you? I used to call it being geographically knackered, coming from the north of England, the town I came from, nobody ever escaped, really. Um, but I had this dream and I just kept pushing and pushing. The beginning was the meatloaf thing. We have this saying, uh, you wait for a bus and, you, and you're there in the rain and then all of a sudden three buses come at once. That was my career. Meatloaf, uh, I'm with him making the record. My manager is in New York uh, talking with Ahmed Erdogan, playing him some of my demos. And uh, Ahmed signed me. And so simultaneously I had this uh, two bus ride and then Toto, uh, asked me to go out on the road, and I was so, uh, you know, such a fan of Toto. That, so within a year, you know, I went from kind of what we call coppering up, kind of saving money to buy food, to suddenly being with, you know, an international artist, a major record deal, and touring with my heroes. It was, it was a crazy year. And and they're and Toto's a group of great guys. I mean, I've I've met them and my they were they couldn't have been more than gracious and kind to my son who who is a you know he's fourteen now but he's a musician and they couldn't have been more kind or gracious to him. I mean, they're just just a nice group of guys. That's how it was for me. I mean, um, obviously I knew who they were. I mean, I'll tell you a little story. I can remember in nine. I forget when Toto Four came out, but I was just struggling trying to write songs and. My wife was paying the bills and we saved up and bought Toto 4. And I remember playing it and crying. I just thought, I've got no chance. I can't compete with, uh, with this. And within a year, uh, I'm on the road with them. We became friends. They played on St. Elmo's Fire. Uh, Jeff played on uh, Don't Leave Your Mark on Me. We just became, I used to be on the bus with them all the time. It was like coming home. And as you say, the first day, hi, I'm David Page, I'm, I'm Jeff Beccaro, as if I didn't know. And they were just gentlemen and gave me time for a sound check. And uh, I can't speak of them high enough. So you've you got your deal and, and you write your first major hit, Naughty Naughty. How did you first find out that was going to be a hit? Does a moment or a phone call or a, a something on the or hearing it the first time on the radio, does, does a story like that stick out to you? Yeah, I mean... It was the 11th song on the album. A song got bumped to put that song on. It was just a little riff we used to warm up on in the studio. And Arvid Erdogan said, John, you got to write a song about sex, sex sells. And I thought, well, okay, I'm, I'm at the knee of the master. 
So I thought about this kind of witty lyric. And then Trevor Horn was really happening in England with all the kind of digital sampling then. Digital had just began. And so um, I wanted to make a record that was kind of mainstream rock, but had all this kind of arty nouveau uh, sounds. And um, I fought Atlantic for that record because they wanted a song called Naughty Naughty uh, uh, Magical to be the first single as a song I wrote with Meatloaf. And I just believed in, I knew Naughty Naughty had the legs. And you know, that record was released at the worst time, uh, like November, December, 84. All the record labels were triple bonusing. So that meant if the record plugger could get it on a P1 station, they'd get a triple bonus. I had no bonuses. Uh, the, the Atlantic were not paying bonuses to the pluggers. So that song would be 95 in the charts, 105, 93. It was agonizing. But um, I just believed in it. And really, the, the song did it. It was on the charts for four or five months and kind of did the job of an album for me, David. Well, and, and I remember the video. And I think before before the Blue Steel look was even invented, I think you had that look in that video. You had that. There were so many pans of you just having the look, you know, <laughs> in that video. Yeah, I, I'd always loved film. And so... Um, I insisted that our, all my videos were shot on 35 mil Panavision. So it was in the days of big budgets. And so a lot of the videos have got that kind of filmic look. And um, I didn't really get to have a lot of control of them in the early days, but the, my control was really the uh, was the look, the overall look. And uh, we spent a lot of money, which I'm still paying for, for some of those videos. But um, yeah, thank you for that. It was a, was a little... Uh, my first adventure. On the back of your tour with Toto, um, at the end of that tour, David Foster asks you to write and record a song for the cult classic movie, St. Elmo's Fire. What was the process of writing a song like that? I went, uh, uh, Toto brought me up to speed a little bit with David. Uh, fortunately, I didn't know too much about his incredible track record, but Toto briefed me a bit. So I went forearmed. When I arrived at this little studio, it's called The Lighthouse. Um, There's just David there. Uh, there were just tapes everywhere and CDs. He was exhausted. And he was doing his first movie that he was a composer of. But he was also simultaneously doing a soundtrack album with 10 original songs, with 10 original artists. It's like lunacy, really. So when I got there, he said to me, look, John, I know I've asked you to write, but will you sing this? And he played me this song and it was like, not great. And I said, I really think we could do better. And he said, I'm exhausted, man. Please just sing. I said, just let's just have an hour. He said, OK. So we went in the control room. There was just like a piano there and a drum machine. And uh, we wrote a song, probably 10. I thought, wow, this is great. He said, we can do better. I thought, OK. So we, off we go. Another 10 minutes. Wow, this is eager as we can do better. Third time in, St. Elmo's Fire. Um, got the great tune, got it all done probably in a couple of hours. Uh, and I was due to come in and sing it the next day. But I could not get inspired by the text of the movie. I came, I came from the north, north of England. I left school at 15. This was a movie about, you know, Silver Spoon Kids, you know, collegiate thing. Got completely out of my comfort zone. 
So David said, look, there's nothing to do with the movie. I'm going to show you this little videotape of a local news station in Vancouver, David's hometown. But there was this film of this kid, he said, and this kid came in the studio a couple of weeks ago and he really inspired me. So he puts the video cassette in and as this guy comes up on screen, like I am now, you can just see him kind of from the waist up. And he's beautiful looking young guy, looked like a young Kennedy. And I realized very quickly that he's in a wheelchair and he says, two years ago, I was living the life and then I had a car crash and uh, broke my back. And he said, I realize you break your arm, you break your leg, you're in a cast for eight weeks, you break this one in your back and you're in a chair for the rest of your life. He said, I'm gonna do something about it. I'm gonna get in this chair and I'm gonna wheel it around the world on the Man in Motion tour. And then the video starts running in the TV station of this like truck, just an old truck with a spare wheelchair on the front. It says, Rick Hansen, Man in Motion, World Tour. Man, the goosebumps on my neck. So, wow, I'm gonna write this story. So I went back to the hotel and I wrote the story of what I imagined, because he was only two months in, this was gonna take two years. So I wrote, the lyric about what I imagined his journey would be like. Uh, But I knew the film company were going to kick it. So I made it so that when I'm talking about the pair of wheels, they're going to think it's Demi Moore's Jeep. For once in his life, a man has his time. They think that's when Emilio gets the girl. But it's entirely about a guy wheeling across a desert up a mountainside. And St. Elmo's fire, this freak of nature burning in the sky, and he's wheeling to the embodiment of his dream. I came in the next day and David said, you're crazy. They're, they're never going to swallow it. And I said, and I want to call it Man of Motion. And he went, they'll never swallow it. The beauty was the film was being dubbed on the Monday, so they had no time. So the song just went bosh into the, never, if you look in the movie, it's just in, in sections. It's never in its entirety. But uh, Rick went on to do the prophecy. He wheeled around the world two years, two months and two days raised 18 million for spinal research. And um, every time I sing that song, I tell the story. We're now at two and three quarter billion dollars raised for uh, the Rick Hansen Foundation. Not all from St. Elmo's Fire. We just helped it along. It's the theme tune, but some great people. And, you know, the aim is that the wheelchair will end up in a museum and nobody will ever be in one. That's that was my little part. That's amazing. Um, so why, why do you think that particular song took off like it did? Was it because of the, because I, part of it seems like the movie would give it the boost, but at the same point in time, the message is so very important. It's a funny thing with songs. I, I liken it to, if you've ever built a bonfire in the garden, you've got all your paper and everything, and you keep lighting matches and it just won't go. And then suddenly it catches light and poof. Now, that match in that paper was that movie and, the, you know, the Brat Pack being the, the darlings of the day. But, you know, that movie came and went pretty quickly. It only became a cult thing in the last few years. But uh, I can remember going to radio stations in England and they'd go, wow, we don't know whether to put it on the playlist. But then we saw you and Tina together and we thought it was interesting. I stopped Tina getting to number one with... Uh, we don't need another hero. Sen almost stopped again. So it became a great story. But that's how, that's how kind of uh, faint-hearted it was. That, but in America, it obviously was straight on the radio. But here we are 30-odd years later. And, uh, you know, people 
people get married to it, people live their, you know, moments in their lives. When I sang it and when I wrote it, I was that man, you know, trying to pursue his dream. And Rick embodied it. And David, you know, provided that kind of uh, platform and the incredible musical skill to help nurture it. And uh, I think that's it. You know, I think when people hear it now, it still sounds fresh because I'm dying. I'm just dying for it. I gave it everything in that recording. I just came off a 40-show tour with Tina. So I was on, I was like an Olympic athlete. So my vocal was, you know, the best it could be. And, it, you know, you know, I was blessed. Um, did you ever get to meet the, 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 I know that, well, let's, let me back up for a second. So the, the, the song gets nominated for a Grammy. Did you yeah. uh, at any point in time end up meeting the actual cast of the f film or? Yes. Yeah. They're in the, it's not one of those where they use footage from the film alone. They actually rebuilt the, uh, the St. Elmo's Fire Bar after it had been taken down for them, but they rebuilt it and the whole cast came and we shot, uh, we shot the bar with me playing in the bar. They didn't want to do it. They, they didn't know me from anybody. And you can see them looking at me when you look on at that video, you can see Rob looking at me sideways. De uh, there's this thing about Demi Moore in the script. It goes, John walks downstairs and sees Demi at the jukebox looking sad and John cheers her up. Well, I can think of a few ways to cheer Demi Mora, but it's not going, gotta be a man. And you can see her looking at me lip syncing. And, uh, but we became pals and Rob and I have been on stage together doing songs. Demi would get up occasionally and do things in those early days. So I kind of won him over. So um, coming off that, like you said, you toured with Tina Turner on the Private Dancer Tour. What do you remember most about that tour? Um... I watched every show. I would go on, uh, do my set, get changed, wait for the lights to go down. Then I'd sneak out and watch every show and the master. So I was just learning at the knee of the master. Um, she was really elevated to those shows very quickly. When I was booked to that private dancer tour, uh, Tina was still honoring uh, corporate gigs at Holiday Inns for corporations and whatever traveling in the truck with a van and within three months she's on her own jet you know uh playing to twenty thousand people uh and killing them every night so i was and and we got to know each other a little and and uh she helped me and uh she was an inspiration you you also i think you toured with the beach boys too no that was crazy that was uh i only did a few shows but uh I remember, because um, we were quite a rocky band, um, and um, one of the road crew said, oh, this is going to be great, uh, one of the Beach Boys crew. We never had a rock band open for us. We always have acoustic bands. I thought, oh, crikey. So I got all the bands to look out for the most Hawaiian-looking shirts they had in the wardrobes, and we went out, and I was, all those years in Cana Cabaret, I used it. Because they didn't really know me, you know. They they didn't know Naughty Naughty, that audience. They knew St. Elmo's, but that was at the end of the show. So I had 30 minutes. But I used to win them because uh, I'd grown up in the working men's club. So it was stagecraft, if you like, was just in my blood. But it was a great experience. And they were great. They were they were the Beach Boys, you know. Um, so what was it like playing Madison Square Garden with Yoko Ono, Julian Lennon, and Ringo's son, Zach Starkey? 
Uh, I mean, that seems like such a memorable moment for all sorts of reasons. Uh, it just, it's wow. I mean, it's, that's just one of those things that, you know, I always thought that, the, that all the Beatles kids should just get together and put together, <laughs> you know, you should have Zach and James and yeah. Julian. It was, um, I'd written a song for, uh, for Roger Daltrey. Uh, I wanted to write a tribute to Keith. My manager was actually Keith's driver in the 60s and was with the, with the uh, Who right up to, to Keith's death. So I know every Who story and every Keith story from the horse's mouth. So I was able to, with my co-writer, Julia Downs, uh, write a song as tribute to Keith, and Roger loved it, and it became his biggest record in uh, solo record in America. And he, he just said to me one day, uh, I'm playing Madison Square Garden. Do you want to come and do it as a duet with me? Now, I mean, Madison Square Garden, to me, was me as a 12, 15-year-old boy getting up 3 o'clock in the morning with my dad to watch Muhammad Ali in black and white fight. So that was scooped forward to me on stage with Daltrey. As you say, everybody came. And um, it was just my, it was mind-blowing. Funny story was... I was prematurely gray. Uh, I've been dying my hair since I was in my 20s. And um, because I didn't know I was going to do the show, my hair was graying out. And I, Roger called me and said, we're we doing Madison. Will you play with me tonight? I thought, Christ. So I got a box of matches and I struck the matches and carboned them up and crumbled it all up and put all the carbon in my sideburns. And I went to the, uh, went to the gig, did the sound check. Roger said, come up to the dressing room. Heather, his wife, is giving head massages. I thought, no. I had to go. So I'm sitting in the room. They're all there. John Entwistle's there. Everybody's in the room. Heather's doing these big, heavy-duty massages. But there wasn't a mirror. So I'd got visions of my face being, and I kept looking at them. They weren't blackening up. And no, I'm looking at everybody's face. Anyway, for some reason, it never came off. And we went out and we, we blasted it. But my memory of Garden is Heather with, with hands in the kind of uh, match ash. That's crazy. That, that, I mean, it's funny and it's crazy. Um, so when you get the opportunity, because you've also done songs for other movies, when uh-huh. you get the opportunity to do a gig like that, do they give you like the plot line of the movie ahead of time? What do they give you ahead of time to kind of give you some guidance or inspiration so you're not just writing out of thin air? Um, I always like to get with the director if I can. And if they just tell me the story, they're just so full of it themselves. And I get sometimes little bits that just, I feel I'm the sixth horse on the team. I'm the guy that's going to try and, you know, tell that story in one song. That's why they called me Mr. Soundtrack for a bit, because I think I did 10 of these movies back for, you know, in two, two years. I remember with The Running Man, uh, I, they, uh, they just took me to the preview theater and they just showed me the, the rough cut. And halfway through the movie, I, uh, I got it. But um, sad that movie, really. That song is called Restless Heart. But what I actually wrote was uh, uh, a song called The Same Song. But the lyric was so on the money because obviously it's about a man that is like, you know, gambling for his life. People are betting whether he lives or dies. So my lyric was, would you bet your life on a running man? Roll the dice on a one life stand. And I recorded it with Harold Faltermeyer. We wrote it together. Then the film company said, we don't want you to call it running man. 
But it's a man. Because what happens with these film companies, they've lived with that title for five years. It's lost its magic. Whereas The Running Man is such a great title out of the box. So I had to go back in the studio and rewrite it and sing Would You Bet Your Life, uh, No More Lonely, Lonely Nights with a Restless Heart. Great, but it's not Would You Bet Your Life on a Running Man, you know. Um, Three Men and a Baby, uh, I came into that with some heavyweights. I came in with Marvin Hamlish, Carabao Sega, David Foster. The story goes that uh, Marvin and uh, Carol uh, rekindled their relationship. They used to be married. They had some fun and spent the budget. And so all David and I had was the lyric and the intro. So we had to come up with uh, the rest of this thing. And um, I loved that movie because I, I just saw it as this revolving door of these bachelors with all these lovely girls going out of the revolving door. But then their life changes when this little bundle of joy comes in. And um, so we wrote the song for that. And then the director, right at the 11th minute, which was Leonard Nimoy, uh, Mr. Spock, it's going to the back of the movie. I'm, I, I, uh, I'm going to put bad boys at the front. You know, bad, bad, bad. But nobody told us. So this perfectly fitting song that fitted the front of the movie went to the uh, went to the end credits. Uh, it's like that, you know. Uh, I remember hearing a story about Brian when he did Brian Adams when he did uh, Robin Hood, Prince, Prince of Thieves. I think Mott told me, um, "I'm never going to do a movie track again," you know, because it's they don't think about the. They don't think about the song. They, you know, and rightly so. They're into the text. They're into the visuals. But you know, it's an art, isn't it? I think if you get so many great movies when they have that great song that defines the movie, and that's you know, I'm always reaching for that. I maybe don't touch it, but that's what I'm reaching for all the time. And you just don't see it anymore, do you? I can't think of the last, you know, defining movie song. You know, probably *Star Is Born*. You know, it, it was it, but that was kind of. You know, one in ten years. Well, know. and but the but the whole thing is is I mean, what's interesting is is some of that came about. Some of your songs came about before I think it became more mainstream to do that. Like, I mean, I know that Elton John has done a bunch for Disney. I know that Phil Collins has done a bunch. Yeah. There are certain musicians who who just slipped right out of one thing, just like there are a lot of rock musicians that are going into country now as they get to yeah. a certain age, it seems as if a number of them went into doing movies. But for the longest time, movie scores were were all symphonic. And then all of a sudden, yeah. you got to the point where I remember when Danny Elfman came on the scene with Oingo Boingo and they did Dead Man's Party. And now he, yeah. And now this guy gets nominated for something every year, you know, um, and, and I I remember it was, I don't know if it was around the time a Miami Vice came on TV when they started, yeah. when they, right around that time is when they, it seems as if there was a transition from, from symphonic, you know, uh, you know, whether it be background or whether it even be an opening or closing song, you know, like Rocky was all symphony, you know what I mean? Sure. And then at some point it converted to rock songs and then it converted to rock songs performed by actual artists. I think you're right. I think it's the I think it was the MTV thing where, you know, some people were making mini movies for it. Then you've got Jan Hammer doing that great score for Miami Vice. And then they would put I remember Naughty Naughty being under an episode. And, you know, very often you and suddenly I think the movie guys thought I think they thought we could do this cheaper. They don't need a hundred piece orchestra. You know, we just 
get this guy to do this or whatever. And, um, you know, and sometimes if you think about it, what some of the great um, movie tunes, I'm thinking of, um, I can't remember the, the Kevin Spacey movie where the girl's naked with the red rose and it's just the piano. You know, it was everything was stripped back. I can't remember the name of that movie, but uh, American Beauty, yeah. And that haunting piano thing. And you, and then loads of people were copying that little single piano line. And um, yeah, and it progresses, doesn't it? You know, and then, you know, uh, I don't know. You know, I think it's very exciting times now because everything's so accessible. And, and movies are even made that different way, aren't they? That intercut thing, you know, you know, the end of the movie starts at the beginning and then they tell the story how they lead up. And it's kind of anything goes and it's, um, you know, that traditional way of telling the story, you know, beginning, middle and end is, uh, has changed. And, and, you know, stuff that you would never think, like you said, the Oingo Boingo stuff, you think, well, that would never fit. And then you sit against a picture and you think, man, it's, it's put, it was made for it, you know. Now, now, speaking of which, you've, you've lived through some of the biggest changes in the history of the music business. What are the main differences you see between what you experienced back then and what new artists are experiencing now? The, if I look at mine, I mean, I've been in, the, I've been doing this for over 50 years. So my heroes were great singers, great entertainers, and great songwriters, and usually great performers. That's a rare package these days, I think. Um, the way records are produced, uh, mainstream pop records to me now is uh there's some great stuff but i find there's a big similarity in a sound in the way the vocals are produced it almost sounds a bit robotic or very heavily affected in the way the singer you know it almost makes it that a guy or a girl that sings just is great it's kind of misplaced because they they're almost out of step with it um and yeah, you know, you get a you get a, a Lady Gaga or someone that is kind of mainstream, but but it cr appears crazy. I think that craziness sold the artist. I think just being this great piano player with a great voice probably wouldn't have broke through. But wearing clothes made out of meat and doing this zany stuff is the gimmick to 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 push it through. But I think it's a tough place now, you know, uh, very tough, you know, and. Uh, I don't know how high, how high the, buyer, the bar is. I know how high it used to be, and I could never touch it, but I was always leaping to it. But if we were to look at streams and, you know, uh, success ratios based on, on, on numbers, to me, it doesn't bear relevance to the magic that I was trying to copy or emulate in my day. What is, what is your best advice to artists you work with now? I think be absolutely true to yourself uh, to work. You have to don't think you're going to make money. I think the difficulty for a young person now is, you know, I'm a dad, whatever. You know, you see these people being famous for just being famous, not musically. You know, so celebrity, what is celebrity? Don't chase celebrity. I, I just I just wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be able to sing like Stevie Wonder or to be able to sing like Tom Jones or, you know, uh, play guitar like Jimi Hendrix or Eric Clapton, you know. And <clears throat> don't look at the in-betweenies. Look at the best. Shoot for the best. If you come up short, you, you might just make the second show. But shoot for the best. 
Don't take no for an answer. I took no for an answer too many times. You know, there are no rules, but break them at your peril. You know, it's crazy, but it's true. Anything's possible. Uh, it's just how bad you want it. Just keep trying. And, you know, with with the platforms out there, I know that everybody's trying to get on. But, you know, it's just get, if it's good, people will see it. And if you can be good live, that's no hiding place. No backing tapes. Just getting out there and uh, as being as good as you are on that day. Practice practice. So you, you grew such a fantastic reputation as a writer, performer, and creator, and now you've got this phenomenal studio somewhere in Yorkshire. Um, yeah. What made you want to create that and open it up to other artists? Was, was that always part of the plan, or did, it, did things just gravitate that way? Because I grew up in the old studio system, so there were always big cathedral type places you know and then it was like the starship enterprise at this end but um i love that thing about having having musicians in a room and you know just that vibe and that magic and of course you can't create that you make great records you know they make them don't they you're in your studio in nashville and he's in la and she's in new york but um unless you're very lucky it comes across that way that magic of being, you know, all together can only happen in a, in a big space. That was the first thing. And then I just love gear. I just, you know, it, you know, in the way you dream over cars or whatever, uh, I just dreamed over gear and wanted to have it. So, you know, why, I'd rather drive an average car and have my Porsche in here. You know what I mean? My Ferrari is all this beautiful, some of this equipment's older than as old as me you know but it sounds beautiful and they still can't quite make it sound like that with the digital so uh, you know i'm i'm a child of of uh, you know of the 60s really i i know you've got new music on the horizon tell us about that well um i was forced into it a buddy of mine i met kenny jones uh, the drummer from uh, the small faces uh he does a uh, a show for prostate cancer and because he's so connected it the who will be on the bill and jeff beck and just invited me into it so I've, since 2014 i've been doing the shows for kenny and we became friends and with his dear buddy mark singer mark said to me john you've got to make a record you've got to make a record so literally he came here and just on the drums just he and i and uh we started recording that way. Then Kenny came up and I wrote a couple of songs, one called Last Man Standing, which is because Kenny's the last small faces guy standing. He played on the drums. It's a beautiful performance and a lovely song. And I got a record that's kind of old school, but kind of new school. It's real songs, real people playing on it. I'm about three quarters of the way off finishing it. We just made a movie about the making of and it's it's joyous. And um, I've got high hopes for it. But, you know, you've got to kind of find a new way in because, you know, I'm an older guy and getting a record, whatever its merit, is a difficult sell, you know. But it's not if you play it. If you play it, let it live and die. Just give it a shot, you know. And uh, I think if they did that more. I always think that with bands like Queen, Foreigner, you know, whatever journey, you know, they, you, they can't get on the radio with their material. And I'm thinking, well... All those people that bought millions of records, they didn't suddenly go. They're there with the dollars ready to spend it, you know. But 
a lot of people don't, unless you're a, f a real avid fan, you wouldn't know that they're making great records and still, you know, I've been out with those guys. I, you know, I was out with Foreign a couple of years ago, going out with them again next year, Journey, me, great friends. And these are the kings, aren't they? These are, you know, are... They laid they laid the foundation, and it's still valid. Well, you know, and it makes it makes me think because so many people listen to XM radio these days, and you have these channels that are dedicated to music of a certain uh, genre or or time yes. frame. And I would think that even though if you're listening to '80s on eight, you know, or the '90s channel, if somebody was you know, uh, then they should play the new music on '80s on eight because they were an '80s star. And then that I might be it. a way to get that music out, I would hope, I would think. It's got to, I mean, it's got to punch its way. It's got to be as good as Waiting for a Girl Like You or Urgent. It's got to be that level. Don't just do it, you know, but these guys, you know, Mick Jones is a giant and still a giant, you know, and, and Kelly is singing. He's a warrior, you know, I mean, man, he's up there with the greats, you know, and uh, Arnell with Journeys punching his way, you know, it's great. So where can our audience go to follow you now? Uh, Johnpar.net uh, is the website. It's a pretty good website. It shows a lot of, uh, you know, what I'm up to, what I've been doing with uh, the American military. I've been over in America doing a lot uh, for the USO and uh, for USA Cares. Uh, I made an album with all the money going to those charities. And it's an album of... Um, valid songs it's not marching bands and military stuff it's like you know who knew Sonoma's fire was about a guy in a wheelchair you know it's just a contemporary song and that's what i tried to do with the military stuff so there's that side you see that on the website uh, pretty active on facebook um and next year i'm like everybody else i'm just chomping at the bit to uh show i'm still standing and i'm practicing every day i, I have to to uh you know be match fit. There you go. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, John Parr. God bless you, David. This has been a, a lovely hour. Thank you.